You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Welcome to the Future of Work podcast. Our guest today is Steve Ensign. Uh, Steve is the CEO and founder of Any Size Deals, a global platform focused on connecting senior real estate executives uh, to uh, the most innovative tech companies in the industry. Any Size Deals puts on the Any Size Deals Week, which is an week, annual week-long festival of real estate innovation that takes place in Las Vegas and tackles various aspects of real estate in- innovation, including blockchain, artificial intelligence and robotics, prop tech, opportunity zones, business thinners, co-working, and much more. In addition, he is also the founder of DMZ Stream, a streaming platform covering all things tech, startup, and entrepreneurship. The most noticeable show in the platform, the Dealmaker Zone, can be found on various platforms, including Manhattan uh, Neighborhood Network and Roku. Steve has a bachelor's degree from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and a master's degree in real estate development from NYU. Steve, welcome to the Future of Work. Thank you for having me, Frank. That was a very kind introduction. Uh, well, we try, try to get a little bit. You've got a lot going, and I think that uh, the Any Size Deals Week is a particularly interesting platform for the commercial real estate industry uh, because of the bandwidth and the fact that it runs a full week covering a, such a wide variety of products. I think it's something that uh, more people should know about and understand. So maybe you can start off telling us a little bit about why you structured that, um, mm-hmm. uh, how you drill down into topics, uh, some of your featured speakers that you've had in the past, quite impressive. Just give us a little overview. Absolutely. So I uh, launched Any Size Deals roughly five years ago. Initially, it was an online platform focused on connecting real estate professionals to do deals. Now, as any startup, when you launch your company, you have to think of different ways to get the word out there. So what I initially started doing was putting on small events. And then I realized that I was getting more traction with putting on events versus the software itself. So from there, I focused on putting on larger scale events. And I would do roughly three to four events a year. At each event, I would focus on one aspect of real estate innovation. So one event could be on real estate and blockchain. The next one could be on the future of work. The next one could be on opportunity zones. And I realized that when I was doing one conference at a time, I was able to really drill down on specific topics and deliver the most value to the attendees. Um, What I decided to do this year, instead of having three or four separate events throughout the year, was instead put on Any Size Deals Week. And during the four days, I would cover the different aspects. It's really a series of events encapsulated in a single time zone and a single location. Correct. Uh, I I think that's great because people that might want to attend two of your events, say Mm -hmm. the travel time and the the housing time, et cetera, uh, the costs. uh, So it makes your event actually a, a much better value proposition. That's And that's my thinking. Now, like in all things in life, you plan, you work on the execution, and then something happens, right? So, <laughs> so, so 
as of today, it's still scheduled for September 8th through the 11th at the Venetian in Las Vegas. But obviously with the pandemic, everything has somewhat slowed down. Um, we're hoping everything's reopened by September, but it's had a huge impact because the the event space, right? Um, it's a space that requires a lot of social interaction, like we're discussing uh, earlier, physical interaction. So if you're someone putting on an event, you have to think about how do you want to execute? What's the best way to add value? So as any business owner, I've been kind of rethinking these things, how to communicate um, and what the plan is moving forward. But like I said, as of today, we're still moving forward with the event until something else changes. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, at Alliance, uh, for about 20 years, we put on two events a year, uh-huh. uh, one the Alliance Strategic Summit and the other the Worldview Forum, both in Europe and back here in the U.S., uh, two, two events per year. And uh, we were focused exclusively on the flexible workspace industry and our, and our own uh, global network of, of business center and co-working operators. Uh-huh. Um, so not the bandwidth that you have. But I, I know we felt it was important to keep the group together and not break the group up too much. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so that the, you have that power and that energy of the whole group. That's where I think will be a challenge um, coming forward for larger meetings. Um, that's sort of the, the, the challenge side. The, the good news is we have offices uh, in, in Vegas ourselves uh-huh. uh, and uh, have some friends over at uh, MGM, which is the largest uh-huh. uh, operator of, of uh, hospitality space in, in the Vegas marketplace. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, they uh, have said they're going to open next week uh, That's on, a limited, on a limited basis. So uh, I'd keep my fingers crossed uh, and, uh, uh, you know, let's uh, do everything we can to, to uh, see that this is a, a successful event. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And you mentioned um, having a team in Vegas. And since this is really about the future of work, one of the biggest things for people like me is because people who attend our events, they come for work, right? So the company um, pays for you to attend or you come, it's business development. Now with the stay at home orders throughout the country, we've seen in some States where people have gone to the beach, people have gone to concerts, people have marched because they don't want to stay at home. Right. Um, But I, the thing is, those are activities. That's for pleasure, right? Like going to the beach is something you do for fun. Um, going to a concert, even in March, it's something you do on your own. Now, going to work, on the other hand, it's different, right? So we don't know what people's reaction is going to be. For example, you have the Amazon workers, right? Who some got sick in the warehouses, and they're upset because they feel Amazon didn't provide enough um safety and health measures for them right so obviously they blame their employer but if you're sick and you're at the beach there's no one you can blame so we don't necessarily know how people will react once they get the go ahead to you know go out and socialize right because there is that we're not really sure i i think that there'll be a i know that right now there's a tremendous amount of pent-up energy 
saying, I need to get back and be productive. Correct. Uh, and a lot of us are quite productive. Uh, uh, I know our own companies, everybody's working mm -hmm. remotely. And my gosh, we're mm -hmm. doing record business this first quarter and so far in April. Um, so uh, you can still be productive by working remotely. That's but true. Uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of uh, structures do require that FaceTime social interaction. You, we can't do everything on Zoom. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can't in particular, because you know, that camera makes me look chubby. I, there's nothing about <laughs> it. <laughs> but, well, let's, let's fall right directly into the future of work. We're talking mm -hmm. about the pandemic a little bit. That, that's going to be a, a sort of a punctuation point. Uh, it's not our life. It's it's something, uh, as you mentioned, different cycles go through all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but what is your view for the office sector in general, for commercial real estate in general, and the officing sector in particular? Uh, what's your view about uh, what's that look like post-pandemic to you? Uh, not necessarily not necessarily the timing of it, but uh, in terms of once things are rolling uh, in whatever new normal we happen to find. So to me, I view it almost as if you have to break it down into different constituents of the space, right? So if you are the employee, the person going to a job working in an office building, this pandemic has allowed you to work from home. There are pros and cons. There's some people who've always wanted to work from home, so that's great. Um, but obviously they're at home with the kids and it's a bit tricky. Um, some people are eager to get back into the office, but even when we get back into the office, um, employers are going to rethink what their policies are, right? Because this gives you an opportunity to evaluate how effective your staff is working remotely versus in the office, right? Because think about it, when you're in the office... I, I, I agree. I, I think it shows... Right? Who, take, who takes responsibility, who has the capacity to stay focused, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Uh, I think it's a real good testing point, uh, honestly, as a manager. It, it is. And if you think about it also for, as an employee in terms of the resources you spend to have people in the office, the space, the real estate that you pay for, the energy, the resources, et cetera, if they're working from home, it's a cost saving. Now, the main thing is really about the effectiveness. So when they come back, are you having everybody come back at the same time? Are you staggering? Um, for example, hot desking was a very big topic. It was a, a, a big thing that companies did, right, where you don't necessarily have a designated office, a designated desk, right? So it's more about if you need to go in a meeting, you can go into a meeting room. If you want to sit at a desk, you just sit at whatever desk is available, right? A lot of tech companies were doing this. It was like a big trend. But now with the whole health issue, that's something that we probably won't see much of, right? You can't have people sharing the same desk over and over and over, right? So well, I, I, think, I think what will happen in that regard, though, and, and we're uh -huh. seeing this in the flexible work uh, sector with business centers and co-working sectors, uh -huh. I think the one of the things that we will see is a new standard of, of what we call clean. Um, if hot desking is going to survive in any structure, it will be organized much more effectively, I would guess, because uh, we're starting to see this around uh, scheduling and reservation systems so people mm -hmm. don't show up at a desk. 
uh, they show up at a particular time and are assigned to a specific desk. And there's a gap within that that the cleaning crew understands, just like when you clean conference rooms, mm -hmm. two, you know, have a gap between meetings. And the cleaning crew is going to be uh, specifically cleaning the workstations between reservations in the future, uh, as opposed to people just slumping down somewhere and, and grabbing a spot. Uh, I think that we are going to see that. We've already seen um, uh, evidence of that going on in the co-working uh, uh, and business center environments. I agree with you, and that does make a lot of sense. So speaking from the co-working and flex space environment, I have like a big a big like concern about, I've always wondered about the model um, because I think, and I'm friends with a lot of people in the space. And I think sure. from a proposition standpoint, creating flexible leases was a very needed tool. I've just always questioned if it's best done by a third party versus the actual landlord of, and my, my reasoning for this is, for example, if you're a WeWork, Notel, Convene, et cetera, you sign a 10 to 15-year lease, and then you turn around and you sublease or subdivide the space, however you want to look at it, daily, monthly, every six months, et cetera, when the economy is going well, that's, that's okay. But if something like this happens where people are not using the office, you're stuck with the 15-year lease, but you don't have any asset tied to it, right? So if you're the landlord, right? If you own the building and you have a 15-year lease, you leased out to you or to me and the space is vacant, I have a building that I can that still has some value I can negotiate with my lenders. I, there are things I can do to salvage what I have. But if it's just the 15-year leases, you're stuck with the liability and it's a tough thing to do. Now, maybe the better model is just partnering with the landlords, right? So you don't actually take the 15-year lease. You're just like the, the manager of the space and you collect the percentage. I think industrious is kind of more in that, that model. Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can say industrious. Uh, actually, um, uh, we were doing that model when we were operating centers uh, back in the mid to late 80s. Oh, I didn't know that. See, so you were a visionary then. There you go. Regis was doing that model in the early 90s as well. Uh -huh. um, one of the challenges you have with that model isn't necessarily the entrepreneurial building or property company that you can basically go cut a deal with. It's uh -huh. the financial institution behind that property company that says, unless you have a certain guarantee Guaranteed. leases, that guarantees the debt that you owe to me, you've broken mm -hmm. your covenants, and you have to increase your equity ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, so the problem is not necessarily between the uh, flex space and the landlord. And the landlord, the problem is between the property company and their lender, okay. and, the proper, and the lender and their investors because they've made certain uh, commitments. So it's a, a full food chain issue, if you will, uh, to deal with. Um, and one of the things I'll mention though, is that in the flexible workspace sector over the last 40 plus years that I've been in the, the business, uh -huh. 
Um, the industry, that sector of the industry has historically had its greatest square footage growth during negative markets, because that's when the landlords, the property companies were, had excess space and were willing to cut the best deals. Because they just want to get rid of the space, right? Right. This is the first time in 40 years, and the industry's been active for about 45 or 50 years. Uh, this is the first time in that entire life cycle that we've had such explosive growth um, <clears throat> um, in what looks like a good market. Um, and the danger there is that so many companies, some of the ones that you've named, in fact, mm-hmm. have signed a big percentage of their leases at the very top of the market. Correct. And so when the market cycles, um, someone with a little more experience, I'll use Regis as a, as a good example, will come in at the as the market goes down, open a new space across the street from 30% lower operating cost, and... There you have it. <laughs> that, that, that game is over. I, well, and, I, and again, we've just seen this happen several times before. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I heard a great quote. Maybe you'll, you'll appreciate this. You never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. That's right. <laughs> that's very true. That's, so, well, so you know, I, that's I the situation I think, a, lot, <laughs> I think a, a lot of companies in, in our industry and throughout the world uh, have been swimming naked for a long time. <laughs> the tide has just gone out, and we're going to see, see a, a lot of uh, embarrassed uh, uh, organizations. But, but, you know, but th- that's the thing. It's just you mentioned the lenders. So the lenders, too, have to come to the table to kind of reassess like what's changed, right? And the reason it was such a high demand, even in a booming market, was just the nature of of employees and the nature of companies, right? Um, And I would say WeWork was a big mover, although they they faced a lot of criticism. They were a real leader in that because they proved that you can scale this thing, so then everybody kind of bought into it. But the challenge... You know, it's like Notel gave back, it's giving back 20% of their space, right? Um, right? The issue with this one is because people were asked to stay at home. So literally, you can go use the space. So you have to think of something else to do. Now, if you're the landlord, the person owning the building, you have your own thoughts of what does post-COVID, wh- wh- how do you manage an office building? What are the priorities? I think technology is going to be a big part of how people... Um, operate their buildings. It was already there was already a growth in that sector in terms of people adopting technology. This just fast forwards it, right? Um, oh, ab- absolutely, that's absolutely right. And I think the first places we'll see it will relate to that clean. You're going to see a readaptation of the HVAC and mechanical systems going absolutely. to uh, uh, common air plenums are going to go away. Uh, HEPA filtering is going to go everywhere. A lot of green building ideas that, that keep keep buildings from being a sick building uh-huh. are going to become uh, uh, standard as opposed to special. And you're going to see touchless access on everything and, and all that sort of stuff, which is just a general step upward in cleanliness. Correct, right? And if you think about it, it should have always been this way, right? Yep. Uh, this just accelerates the timing of it. So, you know, Frank, I got a question to you. For me, my biggest thing when we all go back to the office, um, there's some people who are 
this thing has really traumatized them. They're just not going to feel comfortable being in spaces with a lot of people. Others are going to be like, you know, it's life. We got to get back to it now. If you're an employer and someone comes to the office and they're sick, like, do you think people view the liability on the owner, the building, or the building owner? Is it on the company, or is this just a fact of life? How do you think people will respond to it? Well, uh, building owners have been taking uh, responsibility in large major markets uh, for building security for mm-hmm. decades, uh, especially post nine eleven. So. Uh, I think the building owners themselves will look at their security processes and and make some determination in that regard. Individual companies within a building uh, or within their own their own properties um, have a further responsibility to ensure a safe workplace, but that requires a certain amount of responsibility on the part of everyone because uh, you have to decide whether you want to live in a very Orwellian, security-oriented, facial recognition, take your temperature before you go through the door, give a blood sample before you get into your office every day. Mm -hmm. Because every day is different. So Mm -hmm. this has to be a daily routine and how that slows down, what the costs are of that to to everybody. Um, uh, You've got to decide what world you want to work, what world you want to live in uh, and how you as a person, how you're going to deal with that. And what I think you'll see is a lot of people that have those fears um, will change jobs. They'll find a job that suits them uh, Mm -hmm. in in that regard, Um, or possibly they're just less desirable as as an employee and maybe they'll lose their job. Uh, We don't know, Um, but what we, we do know is we've seen uh, let's take China as an example, uh-huh. uh, and let's let's look at SARS. Well, um, SARS ripped its way across Asia. We didn't have it here to the same degree. No, we didn't. It ripped its way across Asia pretty dramatically for a while, and all of Asia got back to work pretty comfortably. And we have mirrors. So we look the same thing, and and its impact in the Middle East in particular. Um, uh, and that area got back to work. Africa is back to work in, in, in spite of Ebola and, and, and different things. So, and if you look at the actual numbers of the, what I'll refer to as the common influenza, which is a type of coronavirus, um, you, you hear all the numbers today about uh, people that are dying from the coronavirus. You're, have you heard a single number about the number of people dying from the normal flu? The normal flu also kills an awful lot of people every year. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, and we don't really have a, an effective vaccine for it. We, we have some. I mean, we know, take the flu shots, right? Yeah, we take, and, and that kind of works. That kind of works. It, we still have, in spite of that, 25, 40, 50,000 people a year in the U.S. that die. Absolutely. But this is the thing, though, Frank, and I'm not uh, discounting anything you're saying. I think two things. One, it's really about um, the the way it's you get it, right? The way you catch this. Yeah, the contagion factor, right? So even if think about it, assume that you think, all the lockdowns are bad and assume there were zero lockdowns, right? You as an individual 
you would feel very uncomfortable going anywhere because the numbers wouldn't be 60,000 or be higher, but two, it's just how you catch it, right? If you have the flu, it doesn't take 14 days. You get it. You're really sick. You can't even leave. You're in your bed. So really, you're not going to be giving this. You can't be asymptomatic with the flu. You're asymptomatic with this disease, right? And so that's the thing. And then the other thing is we're human beings. So anytime something is new, our brains react differently. I just never... So, I know I can die, a car can kill me, right? People die of car accidents all the time, but I still drive a car, still walk down the road because I'm aware of it. I know, but I've never heard of this thing. And you tell me it's just killing people. Y'all freak out. It's a new thing, right? So by the time we get to like, assume we reopen, people go back, the numbers don't get too wild. People still die, um, but the hospitals are not overwhelmed. And then we get a second wave. The people are not going to freak out as bad because no. they've heard of it, right? It's like oh, if you've I... never heard of something, the first you know scares you. So I think that's that also factors into what scared people. Besides the fact that it's extremely con- contagious, right? Well, so. I think I think coming back to the what is the post pandemic uh, world of the future of work look like. And uh-huh. I think one of the things that will impact it, certainly in the major markets, even more than uh, office buildings, because what an office building can do or what an employer can do is, uh-huh. uh, as, I, as I mentioned, if they're hot desking, well, they can run reservation systems. Um, and the other thing they can do is shifting systems. I don't have to have half as many people in twice as much space I agree. to accomplish social distancing. I just have to have two work shifts. I mean, half the people come in uh, between uh, six and three, and the other half the people come in between three and eight. Yeah, or different days of the week. I, I, I think that's different a great idea. Right. It's, all, it's all around traffic management more Correct. than space management. Uh, so a combination of uh, one day out of the office, that gets rid of 20% of the workforce of the office one day, two days out of the office, and maybe one day at home and one day in a co-working center. Uh, uh, all of these things have massive impact if they're, if they're uniformly practiced. The problem I see coming uh, at it is uh, we, everybody in New York makes fun of Californians because we all drive cars and you all jump on trains and have mass transit. Mass transit is going to be more of a problem. It is. I mean, that's why our numbers are high in New York, partly, right? Exactly. That's going to be more of a problem than the the workplace itself, is how do you get people to work? Absolutely. Listen, before, and this is is one of the things about um, shutting down things, right? Obviously, I'm personally, I think it made sense that we shut down just because the numbers were going to be too high. But even if we didn't shut down, restaurants were going to go out of business because no one has to tell you. People were not going to go to as many restaurants. And then the subway, I live in New York, I take the subway. The subways were empty before the official shutdown. For example, school. I think school was closed on March 16th in New York. So that last week, my kids go to a school that has about 700 um kids right and when you go to pick up the kids there's literally maybe a thousand people including all the parents 
that last week, maybe 200 people were there. So people were already keeping their kids at home without you telling them to. Then the subways were pretty much empty, right? So people were not taking the subway. This is before they shut down anything. So psychologically, people themselves were like, no, public transport, I'm not comfortable. No, I think think that's true. I I read a study the other day. uh, uh, This was done on London uh, and Mm. it was based on on their their tube system on the metro there. Um, That if social distancing were uh, properly assessed as it related to London's mass transit, their combo train and subway system, that those systems would operate at approximately 15% effectiveness. Um, which means 85% of the people that are riding those systems, a mass transit system in London, could not be serviced. How do they get to work? Well, technology. We talked about changes in technology in the office place, Uh the workplace. Certainly technology is a factor. Work from home is a factor. We'll call that work from home. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 regional uh, co-working and business centers that are close to the home that where that can be walked to or cycled to or driven to very conveniently uh-huh. uh, is another factor that where the technology in the center ties to the office, dedicated network systems for larger companies. Uh, uh-huh. I know we do dedicated network systems for some large companies uh, where we build a custom system for one company into a co-working center. So uh-huh. that that company has uh, their own stuff, not the co-working center stuff, so to speak. And they also have the higher sense of security. Um, so things of this nature certainly will be uh, uh, looked at very seriously. Um, and again, if you have, uh, if you look at the work week and you can reduce your factor of days in the proverbial office by 20 to 40% or mm-hmm. one or two days a week, uh, you pretty much, by just scheduling that, you've pretty much accomplished your social distancing. You have, and I think one of the key benefits here is that more employers are going to be more flexible in terms of scheduling oh, yeah. and, Absolutely. you know, under, really incorporating. You know how they always talk about work-life balance, which was always a myth? I think with this, it's just, it makes sense, right? Because if you don't have to have everybody at the office at the same time, so people are more flexible, but also a lot more if you employ more people remotely then your talent pool increases so for example for a cost for example take tech companies right engineers cost a lot of money right so if you just want to be in silicon valley in new york you have to pay software engineers a lot more if you're open to hiring software engineers let's say in austin or in des moines iowa or wherever and they can work remotely your costs go down right so this also provides an ability to people to be more open, right? From that st- standpoint. That's absolutely true. And, you know, we, we worked with a lot of uh, larger fortune 1000 companies and their big battle uh, for talent as the economy is, is growing um, was huge. And they found that they couldn't attract talent unless they had a flexible workspace program, uh-huh. a flexible work program. So uh, we have the old situation of um, the HR manager working with the facility manager, working with the CFO, working mm-hmm. with someone else. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. 
Yes, but I they have. Were trying to create the perfect flexible work program, everyone. And they had one foot over the threshold of the door to make it company wide. Mm-hmm. And they just got kicked in the ass. And they went right through that door and they found out good was good enough. And now that CFO is walking through that totally empty corporate headquarters right now, as you started out saying, kind of looking at all that empty space. And he looked at the company and all those software engineers that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, hey, they're, they're all getting their work done and the company's running fine. And I don't need this stuff anymore. No. <clears throat> so I, no. I think that that is a massive realization and what you'll probably see is huge because the CFO's goal of the flex work program wasn't talent it was reduction in balance sheet they want to get the long-term lease liability and debt liability off their balance sheet so they can improve their borrowing power and attract more capital and have a better shareholder price mm-hmm. so all those things come into play now um, I think that that's the post-pandemic shuffle we'll call it that's going to occur is large companies will reassess all companies will reassess what they really need versus what they had been been having they will restructure themselves in their balance sheets that will create more corporate value um uh-huh. uh, overall um and to your point uh, it's very expensive to hire a software engineer in des moines and move them to new york Absolutely. I wasn't even counting you were going to move them. I was just saying you hire them and they work from there, right? Well, that's yeah. that's the difference. If you move them, you have to disrupt their family. Perhaps their spouse works. Mm-hmm. Um, their kids are in school. They have a house. Well, you've got to deal with all those costs, both uh, actual and emotional, in order to get them to come. So if they call, so they're going to and you've got a higher cost of, of, of lifestyle and, and employment in, in certain markets too. Mm-hmm. But you have these other costs that you don't really talk about that impact that, that higher salary. If you can hire people to find the best people, keep them in place, mm-hmm. maybe with a combination of working from their, their home, even it's, it would be cheaper to buy them a new house <laughs> to say, Oh, Sell your old house for 500 grand. Let's buy you a new house for 600 grand. And that new house has uh, uh, a gigabyte of Wi-Fi and a private office in it. Probably be cheaper, like you said, you know. Or another option would be if there's some regional uh, flex space operators that can offer good deals where it's not as expensive. So then you have your remote force work from there versus everybody have to be in the same physical location, right? You, you do. You do see a lot of that now. Uh, even the U.S. federal government just put out an RFP a few months ago uh, for uh, a beta program. And this is kind of interesting, a beta program that would include between 10,000 and 50,000 workers nationally. Oh, wow. And that RFP um, uh, required uh, in 33 different markets uh, costing for um, unscheduled workspace, basically unscheduled hot desking, fully mm-hmm. scheduled and dedicated workstations in a freestanding environment and private offices, uh, all to be set up on, like you would normally in a business center, a co-working center, a rolling one-year budget. Oh. Um, and so that's a pretty complicated bid project, but several people have done it, ourselves included. And 
what you you find in that the government, you know, and, and, and I guess I'll say you, you you can argue about governments all over the world, but pretty much one thing in, in the U.S. that our government ultimately has to agree on, both parties and all all parties, is a budget. That's true. And how long are the budgets? One year. Mm-hmm. So if they, just like the corporations are trying to do, can match the real estate liability cycle with their budget cycle, which is part of this experiment, mm-hmm. uh, cost-cutting effort by the federal government, if it, if it works. And the same with corporations. Corporations, you said, were referencing their 10 to 15-year lease cycle mm-hmm. uh, or debt cycles for their real estate when their employee life cycle is just under seven years. Um, so they're trying to match those life cycles as well of their their, their portfolios, uh, fixed asset portfolios versus their employee life cycle uh, and get that in balance also. And if they can do that through the use of the co-working and business center, the flexible workspace industry, mm-hmm. if you will, um, <clears throat> then uh, un- like before, where you were challenging the model of the co-working end of sector, you would say, well, wait a second, the, that sector becomes the savior to these other two problems. So, Frank, this is the thing. The flexibility of the lease, I'm not challenging that. That makes sense, right? Like the federal government wanting a one-year lease because they're budget, that makes perfect sense. What I'm asking is who... It's the best to deliver that value. Is it a third-party co-working company or is it the landlord themselves? I guess that is my question, right? Because like Tishman Spire does it too, right? They do. They own all the buildings, but then they also have their own in-house flex space and co-working brand. But they also lease out space to their competitors, the WeWorks of the world, et cetera. Right. Yeah, I, so. I, I, I would very definitely say that the third-party provider is the solution. Why is it uh, third-party uh, better equipped? Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll use the hospitality industry as an mm-hmm. example. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of people that own hotel properties. Mm-hmm. Lots of hotel property people. Mm-hmm. They hire Marriott to run them. Because Marriott got out of the business of owning the real estate. They just figured they run it, right? They're in the business of managing and providing a service. They're a service provider. Correct. Because they have that strong, that brand, right? Like I'm going to set a Marriott, right? right? And I'll use use Alliance itself. Mm -hmm. Alliance got out of the business of owning business centers in 2000. And yet, you don't know we don't own business centers. So we look like we're one of the biggest business center operating companies in the world. Mm-hmm. And yet, we only own the customers and provide the service. We don't own the centers anymore. So we're like Marriott Services in that regard. Uh, uh, we deal with the customer, kind of a blend between Marriott Services and so. And so, Frank, I have a question for you because you seem to know a lot more about the hospitality space than I do. So the, if, when Marriott cuts a deal with the person who owns the physical real estate, the hotel, like what are the terms of the arrangement? Because the whole, it's like nightly rentals, right? So is Marriott on the hook for something, assuming the market tanks and people are not staying? Like what is Marriott's liability in this arrangement? Well, your general hotel management companies, uh-huh. um, number one, Marriott, like all of them, have cut 50 different styles of deal. 
<laughs> Probably, yeah. You have, um, you generally have um, large master hotel property development companies, and mm-hmm. they build the facilities. Mm-hmm. They they own the dirt. They own the they own the fixed assets, mm-hmm. and they hire uh, a an operating company. It could be Marriott. Could be hired. Could be any number of companies to mm-hmm. come in and run this fixed asset for them. You see the same property sometimes go one day it's a Sheraton, the next day it's a Marriott. Mm-hmm. You see that, that occur in, in, all, all the time. Um, and generally those companies, Marriott mm-hmm. in particular, says we Marriott will run your hotel so long as you involve us in the design and the development so we know it's built right mm-hmm. to, to the standard of our customers. Mm-hmm. And that a contract is subject to our approval, the design of the development. It's also um, uh, our management uh, is on a participation basis. So we take X percentage of Y mm-hmm. uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, if we fall below Z, mm-hmm. some, some overall number, then you have the right, if we can't correct that, to replace us. Correct, but Marriott is not paying rent to the, the, the generally Marriott's not on the hook. Now, sometimes they go in, and different companies do this differently as a partner, and they say, "Well, let's form a three a, a partnership. Uh-huh. You contribute the property, we'll contribute the operation, so we're on uh-huh. the hook business, but you're on the hook for the property." But which was my point, Frank, is that um, it's not that I, the, the 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 business itself is very valuable. My thing is maybe the company should rethink how they cut the deals with the landlords. Don't don't sign a 15-year lease with them because it exposes you and you're responsible for this if the market tanks. So come up with a different arrangement. I, I would I would fully agree with that, uh, but I, I don't think the the property companies in general, there have been many of them that have uh, entered the industry. Uh, mm-hmm. the service office and, and co-working industry over the decades. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they generally, they're better at building buildings and running facilities than they are providing service. And I'll ask you, if you're a tenant in any mm-hmm. building anywhere, when was the last time you actually got some service out of them? You know, uh, they, it, it, just some people, are types and structures of companies are built to do different things. Um, just like a service company generally isn't the best at technology. That's a technology company. Um, so I, I, I think that the third party provider, the other thing is the customer wants choice. Mm-hmm. And Tishman is a nice company. It's a very large company with great properties, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they have in Kansas City? Uh, um, I'm going to guess they don't have anything in Oklahoma City. I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, Texas. Um, and but a lot of the customers, the, the large corporations in, in particular, they need to see the same quality of service regardless of where they're located. Exactly. And across a hundred cities, and they want one contract to do it with. You know, that's the point Amal, the CEO of Notel, that's the argument he would always make. Well, it's, it's valid. The problem is uh, that Notel can't be everywhere. Even Regis isn't everywhere. Uh, overall, 
uh, and mm-hmm. Regis has thirty five hundred locations. Under well, he he just meant like global companies, right? They want to have the same standard for their employees throughout the world, right? So if you're in London, if you're in Paris, if you're in New York, as in his company, then it's easier for them to pitch a, a multinational company to use them as their office provider, service, or et cetera. Yeah, I, I think that's the pitch. Um, uh, I don't think it's valid in their case because they just don't have enough coverage. I, I think that's a, a, a goal and something to uh, talk about, but not something that's uh, reality in, in their particular case. Uh, others, uh, Regis, Instant, Alliance, uh, have the global coverage. Um, uh, so that makes, a, you know, a, a, the pitch real. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hear you. I, I, I can open, open you, you say to me, I, I need offices in 10 countries, uh, and I need a, a, in 10 cities in each of those countries, and I want them all in 10 minutes. One contract. Uh, there's two people in the world that can do that, uh, Regis and Alliance. Um, that's it. Um, so, well, we're, we're kind of wandering all over here. Uh, we started off with... Uh, <laughs> post-pandemic and we've wandered all over the place, but that's good. Uh, uh, gives us a lot of bandwidth in the conversation. And I know you've got a, a, a time uh, deadline here. I do. So I'll, I'll ask you, if, if you're going to make one pronouncement from what you've seen from all of your sessions and uh, uh, at any size deal week, um, mm-hmm. if you're to make one pronouncement on a post-pandemic office environment, on behalf of the worker, on behalf of the employees, mm-hmm. what would it be? I would say uh, on behalf of the employees, employees are going to want, want a lot more flexibility in terms of whether they're working from home or coming to the office. And if they do come into the office, I think the biggest concern is really about what sort of health and safety measures are around. I think that's going to drive a lot of the conversation when people are looking for companies to work at. Um, when they're looking for benefits packages, et cetera, really, what are you doing to ensure my health and safety? And what is your flexibility around where I work? I think, to me, that's going to be the biggest takeaway. So you see health and safety in the new post-pandemic world, we'll call it health security. Correct. Um, Health security as a required benefit for employers of the future and a required deliverable from office buildings to their tenants where those employers, who those employers would be. And that the flexible workspace and co-working sectors need to be looking out into the markets near the workforce because of uh, um, uh, 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 mass transit issues mm-hmm. as opposed to just fixated on central markets such absolutely. as absolutely 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 okay because it's 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 huge value right because we like we talked about it for me to get to work i have to hop on a train or whatever so if you can bring me an environment that's closer safety that has enough safety then you're obviously adding value to me right so okay that's what i would well, say that's a, i think that's a, a, a good summary for for our session today then and uh I thank you very much, Steve, for really uh, uh, shedding light on a lot of different areas that uh, I hadn't considered. 
and uh, look forward to sharing more with you in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. It was a pleasure. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?